Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week in the uh, battle against big tech, we've got China jumping in with uh, movements to crack down on foreign listings, a little obscure office that is relatively new to, uh, to China's bureaucracy is, uh, is pushing uh, Didi off of uh, a core platform there. And here in the US, we've got uh, President Biden planning to sign a very widely uh, encompassing executive order calling on uh, greater regulation and, and scrutiny of, of big tech. So we, we see it across the board and uh, it does have um, both a, a nationalistic feel, at least that's what the China piece feels like, is to uh, build up their own financial network and, and uh, financial markets and also protect their, uh, their technology companies, keeping them in, in-house, if you will. And at the same time, uh, the executive order that will uh, establish a competition, um, White House Competition Council is really designed to, to uh, limit the power of uh, big tech here in the U.S. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you, Sean. I, I think there's a clear contrast here where some of the recent moves we've seen in China against uh, Ant Group and uh, and now Didi are coming on the eve, if you will, of them going public. Uh, and it's been really two things. It's been not only trying to uh, keep keep the the flow of um, uh, of, of of the investment uh, in in China. Uh, but also to uh, to to maintain uh, a level of, of oversight, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to a lot of the consumer data uh, that that these companies have access to. So uh, it's I, I get very much of a vibe of a you know giveth and taketh away uh, kind of approach, where over the years these. Uh, these companies, or at least the the founders of these companies in previous ventures, have been able to grow in large part because of the support uh, of the government and the controls, uh, and then the policies that uh, you know protect them from uh, competition, open competition uh, in China, uh, and uh, and and now it feels like the government is kind of saying. Uh, it's it's a two way street. You know, you have uh, reached this level of success in part because of us, uh, and so you know, don't think that you're going to be able to uh, evade our, our oversight. Uh, you know, just as you uh, are are able to receive this huge uh, in, inflow of, of investment uh, and uh, and foreign investment. Uh, in the U.S., it seems more of a continuing narrative uh, around some of the the concerns uh, around big tech. A lot of, you know, th- some of the things in this executive order have been kicking around for many years. Uh, of course, it's part of a, a broader set of uh, recommendations that extend uh, far far beyond uh, tech and, and reach into a number of industries. Uh, airlines, for example, uh, well, I, I guess you could say this is tech-related. Uh, 
requiring to uh, re required to offer you a refund if the Wi-Fi <laughs> does doesn't work on on the plane. Uh, oh, oh, the money I would have now uh, had that had that <laughs> been in effect. Uh, but um, uh, but but you know one one of the uh, things that have been again kicking around for a long time is uh, a right to repair law, uh, and uh, you know Steve Wozniak. Uh, unsurprisingly coming out in, in favor of this, very much in the, the old hacker uh, ethos. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's become uh, a, a big issue in a lot of consumer devices uh, that uh, as we have striven uh, to make these things smaller uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and thinner, uh, it's become, you know, very difficult to, to repair uh, a, a lot of these products or or only the manufacturer um, has the tools and capabilities to repair the product. So uh, this would seek to, uh, to to broaden to broaden that scope. Yeah, and this uh, to your point, this really builds on the uh, executive order that President Obama passed in in 2016, just before leaving office. Essentially, that in, that encouraged government agencies uh, to make an, a number of initiatives. Uh, most of those weren't weren't, uh, you know, they didn't have time to execute against them. And those that that did try to do anything were kind of quickly overturned as the Trump administration took over. And I think you're seeing the, the impact of, uh, you know, what you might call recent hires of the Biden administration. This, this You can see the influence that the Tim Wu, who's now serving as a Biden aide, is having on some of the, the policy initiatives that the administration is, is undertaking. Uh, unlike other executive orders, uh, you do see that, you know, that, that uh, essentially mandate a change. This one is encouraging the uh, re respected agencies to, to initiate action and to, you know, to push in that direction. So when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, which, as you noted, won't impact just big tech, but it really does have a, a feel like it's focused on, you know, a big tech would require them to um, really provide greater scrutiny on, on vertical mergers. So historically, antitrust was focused on horizontal mergers where market uh, concentration would increase, and and uh, you know we have a measure in, in antitrust that we use to to measure that concentration. We didn't typically scrutinize vertical mergers to to much extent, uh, and uh, this executive order will call on the FTC and the DOJ, our two antitrust uh, agencies, to really provide greater scrutiny on on vertical mergers. And uh, kind of up first will be Amazon's purchase of, of MGM Studios will be a, a big one. So uh, that will be, you know, really back, back in the uh, focus. I, I, fi I find that one interesting um, because I was about to raise the question, uh, you know, who, for who else has this been relevant to beyond Facebook, right? I mean, they are the company that uh, often comes up when we talk about the acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp, and you know, trying to potentially undo those. Um, you know, another one I, I thought of. You know, again, if you're going to go back in history, uh, was maybe Amazon's acquisition of Diapers.com, which you know might have been a competitor, but as I recall, uh, was uh, losing a lot of money uh, at the time of acquisition. 
Zappos uh, was certainly a rising star uh, when uh, when Amazon purchased it. Uh, so th that might be another example. Uh, but um, you know, trying to think of some of the the other companies, uh, Google. Like you know, did Google really buy you know other uh, buy out other search engines? Well, YouTube not? would be. I mean, if if they were buying a search engine, that would be viewed as probably a horizontal merger. There, where they're consolidating the market. Right. But where right. where they go and they buy YouTube, historically. That wouldn't have received a lot of scrutiny because it was exactly well, not under this. Yeah, yeah, and so so this will will uh, encourage the FTC and the DOJ to look much more closely at those type of mergers, and and arguably it will be much harder for uh, large tech companies to move into adjacent markets, and and that's what they've been able to do with some of these acquisitions is move into these uh, adjacent markets. I mean, ar arguably, uh, you know, the Instagram uh, acquisition by Facebook is the one that is often touted. And it really, it was such a small acquisition at the time relative to the, to the size of Facebook and uh, with Facebook's help and support and already taking advantage of some of its momentum, it was able to grow into a, what is, essentially a major social network, uh, but it will, it will be a difficult challenge for the DOJ and for the FTC, I think, because it's hard to look at, a, at you know, to know what's going to happen ex ante, to know what Instagram might become. And so they're going to have to get creative in how they look to, uh, to, to really respond and to regulate these type of uh, acquisitions and mergers. Yeah, I guess if you're going to think about horizontal acquisitions, you know, one of the biggest ones, uh, I mean, again, Instagram, certainly relative to Facebook was, was a relatively small acquisition. But at the time, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I seem to recall it being a record breaking acquisition. It was uh, one, one of the early ones to be over the billion dollar uh, threshold, as I recall. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, Google, Google's purchase of, um, uh, of Android, you know, um, uh, back when that company really, you know, as a standalone company, didn't didn't really have, uh, you know, many many prospects would would have found it very difficult to start uh, create licensing agreements or even, uh, and I'm going to, you know, try, uh, hope hope I'm going to get the name of this company right. Applied Semantics. Uh, probably the most seminal uh, acquisition in Google history, uh, because it's the one that provided Google with the revenue model uh, of, uh, of being able to um, target ads contextually uh, based on based on uh, based on searches and really really set up you know Google to have a, a revenue model, uh, which is something that it didn't have in its its earliest days. I think ultimately it puts every acquisition under uh, increased scrutiny. Uh, sure. if, you're a, if you're a large company and you're looking to acquire other assets uh, or uh, to acquire a, a full company, then uh, that's going to be looked at much, close, much more closely than it has. And I think that will be a great challenge for every large tech company because they acquire a lot of very small properties right. or, or small companies that they either shut down or they over time integrate into their existing offering. A lot of times it's an acquisition of talent. They right. want the, the, 
the staff and some of the IP to integrate into their, you know, broader offerings. So I think it will be um, a difficult challenge for the DOJ and for the FTC. And I think it also bring a lot more scrutiny to every single acquisition that these companies try to make. Uh, it's interesting, Ross, that you mentioned Android because Android is in the news this week. Uh, 37 attorney generals from across the country have gotten together to sue Google over its antitrust uh, uh, you know, um, choices, if you will. And uh, they filed a suit against, uh, against Google Play. Uh, ultimately, arguing that uh, Google has used anti-competitive measures to uh, hinder the uh, the Play Store um, competition, and uh, so we'll see what happens there. Google obviously coming out and defending itself, arguing that Android is a a free technology, and th- and this is an argument I think you see often from the tech companies. How can it be anti-competitive? We're offering it for free. We're giving away. <laughs> uh, we're giving it away for free. They well, point to all of the free things that they they offer. Yes, but but in this case, uh, when Google says free, I, I think they're referring to, you know, free as in freedom, not not free as in beer. Uh, to use the uh, the open source uh, uh, comparison, uh, you know, free in that anyone can. Uh, take the open source version of, of Android and, and do what they want with it. Uh, that, of course, is not the version that, you know, almost all of us, almost all Android phone users use on their phones. Uh, but, for example, it is why uh, Amazon has been able to, uh, you know, create tablets uh, that use Android but do not use the Google Play Store. And, of course, in China, uh, you know, a number of companies have uh, implemented their own apps and, and stores uh, on top of the open source uh, ver- version of Android. Uh, and so this is, uh, it's not only, you know, that's the, the, that Android is, is quote, free, uh, as in, uh, again, as in freedom, you know, open source. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that they're not quite the same thing uh, for, uh, for, you know, Richard Stallman, if, if you're listening, uh, you know, please, please forgive me. Uh, but th- th- this idea that on, on iOS, Apple does not permit the, the, the installation of any third-party app stores, uh, whereas on, on an Android device, you can install a, a third-party app store. Um, even if it has Google Play, now a very, very small <laughs> Uh, percentage of uh, of people do this, uh, but it is possible. You know, you can go to the, if you have an Android phone from Samsung or Motorola or, you know, OnePlus or or one of these other licensees, you can go to the Amazon App Store and install it. You may get a warning. In fact, you don't even have to install anything. You can go to certain websites like APK Pure uh, and just start downloading apps. And, you know, you may get a warning saying that, you know, you have to enable installation from so-called unknown sources to do this. But, you know, we're, we're starting to see this on desktop platforms as well. You know, we're starting to see it in macOS, where uh, they have a technology called Gatekeeper that, uh, you know, tries to discourage users 
from installing um, apps from so-called unknown sources. So that's really, you know, that's a big part of Google's response. And as we were uh, chatting earlier, Sean, it, it kind of, you know, part of it comes down to whether the standard is, you know, is it a de, de jure forbidding of an installation of a third-party app store or, or a de facto discouragement from installing uh, a third-party app store. And, and that's really what separates a case against Apple from a case against Google. And specific to the Google case, the, the AGs outline in their suit a number of tactics that, that Google has uh, pursued in order to prevent the, the Samsung store from ever becoming a, a viable competitor to the, the Google Play. So to your point, well, it is open uh, and Android is open and allows you to sideload apps and even load competing uh, storefronts. They, um, whether they uh, do that or not is kind of secondary, but did Google actually take steps to inhibit other stores from becoming, uh, becoming viable? So uh, they talk about how uh, Google used revenue share agreements with phone manufacturers uh, that prohibited the pre-installation of other app stores. So again, this idea of having something pre-installed. Right, a, a default. It, it comes down yeah. to, to defaults again, yeah. Yeah, and, and we actually saw um, you know, some interesting research this week that was sponsored by uh, Facebook that found that um, uh, this was a, a story, I believe, by Comscore that, that ranked the popularity of pre-installed iOS and Android apps, such as Apple's Messenger apps, and, and found that pre-installed services dominated when it came to some of these basic services. Apple, as you would imagine, uh, disputes the findings of the, uh, of, the res- of the research, but it suggests that uh, pre-installed apps have market power, essentially, that they are able to dissuade the, the installation of other, uh, other apps. So there's a, my, you know, uh, and- my, my favorite takeaway from, from, uh, from that study was that uh, more people use Apple's calculator app than, than Gmail uh, more, or that, uh, that is more popular, but yes, uh, you know, at least in terms of uh, the story I read on it, you know, I saw the Apple response and, uh, it really was not um, a very compelling response. You know, it said that, uh, you know, we compete against third parties in a number of our, with, with a number of our core offerings. And of course they do, you know, but, uh, but that's not what the study's saying. You know, the study's saying within the top 10 or 20 or whatever they looked at, you know, they are leading. Uh, and uh, at least on on the home platform uh, for Apple's App Store and and Google Play, there's nothing wrong with these apps being popular, and even being the most popular apps. But the question is, are the companies doing things to sub subvert competition, to hinder other apps from being as popular? from hindering the ability of other storefronts becoming equally popular with users? Have they done things to, uh, to inhibit that competition? So that, you know, that's what it really comes down to. Whereas Apple's argument is 
the rules are clear. You can easily, you know, introduce a new app. You can be competitive on on the in the app store. And Google says, look, we've got all of this wide, you know, openness that uh, that you're able to do what you want. Um, but at the end of the day, did they do things to inhibit users from making choices with that openness? Well, regardless of any alleged uh, backdoor dealings, one disincentive certainly to using third-party uh, Android stores is that Google's leading apps are not there. Uh, so, you know, we can talk about cause and we can debate cause and effect, uh, but uh, you know, Google Docs, Gmail, YouTube. Uh, these are, of course, you know, Google Maps. Uh, these are uh, very popular apps, uh, and they are not available on the Amazon App Store. You know, uh, they are available on iOS, uh, but and they're not available on the Samsung App Store. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, as as long as the if the device does not have Google Play, uh, you're going to be challenged to get uh, a sanctioned version of of those apps. In another interesting story this week, we saw that uh, TikTok is now starting to accept resumes, or, or rather, uh, users can post their resume in a 30-second uh, TikTok video. They've uh, partnered with, uh, I believe, 12 companies, including companies like Target, uh, in this initial pilot. So uh, they've listed a number of jobs, and if you want to apply to those jobs, you can do so through what, what TikTok is calling TikTok resumes, which is a, again, essentially a, a TikTok video. So uh, Ross, do you think, is this the, the future of jobs? Should I be dusting off my uh, gotta, TikTok? Gotta, uh, yeah, I got to brush up on my dance skills. Uh, you know. uh, look, in general, I think this is amazing. Uh, and I, uh, you know, the resume has been one of the most stayed, uh, you know, forms of, uh, of, of document for decades. Uh, and uh, I can see how it's something that just does not resonate with millennials uh, and, and Gen Z, uh, you know, particularly with their, uh, with their strong video focus. Uh, so sure, why not? Um, my only concern, uh, and this has nothing to do with TikTok in general, uh, but, you know, video resumes have been around for, for quite some time and they raise concern about, uh, you know, potential um, discrimination issues uh, coming up during the, the hiring process. Video, video interviews, uh, you know, have also, uh, there, there have been some concerns there. But, uh, look, you know, the, some of that bias has, has uh, been shown to occur in, uh, in, in, uh, print uh, or you know textual resumes as well, based on you know the the, the name even of the person on the resume. So so uh, you know in general, I, I think it's positive, and I, I think that uh, uh, it shows that TikTok um, has been uh, thinking creatively uh, about the medium. I would argue in, in some ways more creatively than than some of their competitors, although the other recent TikTok story shows that they are not above uh, borrowing uh, certain features. They're looking to start a uh, competitor, a competitive feature to uh, Cameo, uh, which is a service that allows you to pay for a video message from uh, a number of different kinds of celebrities. I remember uh, the actor who played 
uh, Kevin uh, from The Office has uh, been one of the, the leading stars uh, of, of that platform. Uh, and, uh, and they're calling their version, TikTok is calling their version shoutouts. Uh, so um, in, in the past uh, on the podcast, we've talked about TikTok and Instagram moving more toward direct monetization for creators. Uh, and I think this is kind of the, uh, the other side of that, you know, building up the demand side, letting people know that there's a marketplace uh, for celebrities, they, you know, or at least TikTok celebrities that, that they may want a, uh, a personalized message from. Well, and I think as we talked about previously on the podcast, what it shows is that TikTok has to compete for this talent as well and has to compete to keep this talent on their platform. So TikTok has built up a unique cadre of influencers, people who have become extremely popular first and foremost on, on TikTok. They were, you know, TikTok first influencers, if you will. And, uh, and so, but in order to keep them there and not having them jump ship to a different platform that they can more easily monetize, you have to give them the ability to, to monetize uh, their presence on TikTok. And so I think TikTok is going through that process now. How do we, allow our influencers that have become really popular on TikTok to monetize their presence on TikTok. Uh, to me, the TikTok resumes highlights that the core TikTok user is growing up and they're now looking for jobs. And so TikTok is maturing as their core audience is, is maturing. Um, the resume field, I think, is a really interesting field. If you go to Facebook today, you'll see that they have a resume section. You can uh, you know, create a resume and apply for jobs. Uh, it surprises me a little bit that they haven't put more focus on it. They have focused instead on dating rather than finding jobs. And at the same time, Facebook is a hugely influential platform for small businesses. So it would seem to make a lot of sense to have resumes be a core aspect of that, especially for the, the smaller businesses that are heavily using uh, uh, Facebook. But it will be interesting to see what other features TikTok brings to market as their audience continues to mature and as the platform matures. Obviously, this also highlights that uh, they've got the real attention of some major corporations and major companies that are seeing TikTok as a, as a viable long-term platform. Another company that's that's part of this pilot is Chipotle. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, we know that uh, all of the food service industry is struggling to, to find workers and bring back workers. Uh, I have yet to see a Chipotle that doesn't have a line going out the door. This makes a lot of sense. This is a, a core audience for them already from a consumer standpoint and a core employment audience for them as well. So We'll continue to see what TikTok does uh, as their audience matures. And also TikTok has been pretty good at being, to your, your point, Ross, very innovative. And uh, so it makes all the sense in the world that they're going to, to take other features that they like and incorporate them into their, their platform, as many of their competitors have already done with all the TikTok features. And, and it's not just maturation, although I, I agree with you, Sean, I, I think that's a great point. Uh, but it's also a way for the non-stars to, you know, find some, some way to drive income through the platform. What about the 99% of TikTok 
you know, users who don't have a million followers and aren't monetizing that way, you know, they're, or even aspiring ones, you know, that, that are going to need day jobs. Another angle I really like about it is that it provides something, a, a way to drive potential income for the people who may not have huge audiences. You know, the last uh, network that I think it's useful to bring up in this context is LinkedIn, uh, which is, of course, you know, the de facto home of what are really online resumes today, right? That's what your LinkedIn profile pretty much is, for better or worse. Um, And there's a strong argument that they should diversify away from that. Uh, Missing the boat on something like uh, video interviews or, you know, coming late to that or, or some kind of video presentation where if I'm an independent contractor, uh, I can talk more about my services and skills and things like that. Just seems like such a natural opportunity. Uh, And, you know, you talked about Facebook, uh, Facebook's resume feature. Facebook, of course, is also offering newsletters, paid newsletters, uh, and attracting a bit of scrutiny for not uh, requiring any revenue share out of the gate uh, for its new uh, newsletter service called Bulletin in a, uh, in, in a clear uh, play to drive uh, market share. But this seems to me, again, to be such a natural business for LinkedIn uh, to offer a Substack like uh, like service. Uh, of course, Twitter has already jumped in. So it's just been very surprising to me. Uh, and because I, you know, it just seems like such a natural opportunity for them. To your point, I agree. They seem to have missed the opportunity to enter a lot of these markets that have developed and, and grown over the last uh, year. And so we'll see if they, uh, if they just course. Uh, And our final story of the week, Qualcomm launches a uh, nearly $1,500 smartphone that they're calling the Insider's flagship uh, phone. They're producing it with uh, Asus, and it will um, uh, feature, even branded on the device itself, the the Snapdragon uh, name. It really looks like a, um, uh, a clear flagship device highlighting the Snapdragon, uh, you know, 888 chipset, and uh, perhaps indicates an, a new direction for Qualcomm to really extend the brand into, uh, you know, a, in a more prominent way in the smartphone arena. Yeah, this is, you know, so Qualcomm, uh, of course, is, is not a, um, a, a consumer device brand. You know, you don't buy Qualcomm branded products. They're an ingredient brand, uh, but certainly uh, for some time now, they've uh, been looking to build up the Snapdragon processor brand, much as Intel uh, once did with uh, Intel inside uh, and is now sort of trying again with Evo. Uh, and uh, what, what this is really about is trying to show the world, hey, we're doing a lot of things that partners are not implementing. So what if there were a phone that did everything, you know, that had all the features that our uh, SOC and and radio modem is capable of? So unsurprisingly, you know, given that it's uh, modems are kind of the, uh, you know, the heart of Qualcomm's business, uh, this thing will work on any band, uh, any 5G band that's out there in the world even bands in uh, Europe and China that, that don't have networks launched 
on them yet. So uh, if you plan to be a, a prolific world traveler uh, in the post-pandemic world, then you want something that will keep up with the uh, 5G network launches, uh, this is probably your, your best bet right now. Uh, it also includes uh, you know, a lot of advanced camera features, uh, 65 watt charging, uh, which uh, will charge you know, a pretty beefy battery in about half an hour uh, to, uh, to full capacity. Um, and uh, we, we see, we, again, we tend to see this a lot on Chinese phones, these very high powered uh, chargers, not so much in, in the US, uh, at least not, not at this level. And it's also worth noting that uh, the phone comes with a free set of uh, premium earbuds from uh, a company called Master and Dynamic, uh, which is maybe not a household brand, but a very, very well respected among uh, audio files. Uh, and it uses the new Snapdragon sound standard that we talked about a couple of months ago in order to achieve better battery life, better noise cancellation, stronger connections, and really try to get to the level of um, integration with the phone that, uh, that Apple has between the iPhone and, and AirPods. So it's probably going to be the closest thing that you're going to see uh, to an integrated offering apart from what uh, Apple, Apple and Samsung offer. You see them making a big push also for the gaming audience, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it's got a you know phenomenal screen with 144 hertz screen refresh rate, which uh, will, will be popular among uh, you know the, the gaming audience. It also has a quick touch algorithm feature to improve touch response by a, a reported 20 percent. So uh, you know this is all about being able to uh, play mobile games. Uh, at uh, you know lightning speed and have a have a very unique experience relative to devices that are are out there today, um, and then of course it it highlights other uh, Qualcomm sensors and features, in, in, you know including fingerprint sensors and other things like that that uh, that are where Qualcomm is trying to create a viable market and and you know stand against competitors. Yeah, Sasha Segan at, at PC Mag uh, wrapped it up pretty nicely. He he just talked about you know it's essentially everything that uh, Qualcomm tends to announce at its big um, Snapdragon event uh, at, toward the end of the year, uh, only a fraction of which tends to be implemented in in the phones of its partners. So so this phone is basically what if somebody ran with everything. Uh, and that's what Asus, their partner, uh, has done uh, in this phone. I will say that, you know, Sean, uh, we were talking earlier, you compared it to the Nexus phones that Google used to do. Uh, I would say that this uh, stands out far more than, um, you know, versus competitive phones than the Nexus phones did uh, back in their day, uh, even though that they were also co-branded. Uh, really, you know, one of the few things about the Nexus phones was that they just used this kind of like, you know, vanilla stock version of Android. Um, that's not so big a deal anymore. Uh, but here there's, I would argue, greater greater differentiation versus uh, a number of phones on the market. So do you think this is something that Qualcomm stays with, Ross? Are we going to see them continue to come out with uh, these meaty smartphones? Will they yeah, ever I, get I think, into I think they will. Uh, Qual 
Qualcomm branded, uh, you think we'll ever see Qualcomm branded smartphones? So yes, yes to the first part and no to the <laughs> second, you know, uh, even, even though that's the direction that Google ultimately went, uh, yeah. with, uh, you know, with, with the Nexus program, uh, killing it in favor of Pixel. And, you know, just kind of looking at that history, you can see how Google has really struggled to make its way, find its way in the very crowded smartphone space, which is uh, one, of, one of many reasons uh, why I don't think Qualcomm would, would enter as a standalone player. Uh, but I, I will say that like the Nexus program, uh, I could see other companies potentially hopping on board. I mean, Asus does have their own line of Android phones. You know, this isn't the, the Zen phone. You know, this isn't the first Android phone that they've done. Uh, and so uh, I could see them maybe doing this with some of their other close partners, uh, such as, for example, Xiaomi, you know, might, might be a great partner, uh, particularly because their phones are really not distributed uh, here, here in the U.S., uh, and so, you know, this might uh, be a good way for them to, for example, test the waters. We will see. I think, uh, you know, there's there's a number of IP reasons, probably why Xiaomi doesn't uh, market their phones yet in, in the U.S. Um, so we, we will see. But I think to your point, it does make a lot of sense that other partners would jump on board. And uh, I'm sure partners are looking closely at how this phone will be received in the marketplace. Uh, and that will drive a lot of the, the conversations from there. Probably a great place to end this week's episode of TechSpansive. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>